beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Joshua Black. Joshua, how are you today? I'm doing good, Sean. Thanks for asking. And I want to also thank all the people who are listening to this uh, once again for following us and giving us a part of your day. And I think that's the amazing part that you're listening to this and you're listening to the stories that people share that come on. So I'm always honored that when we see the downloads, um, that people are, are actually listening to this and caring about what people say. So thank you so much. Today we have on the podcast, Alan Klein. Ever hear of a jollytologist? Well, meet the world's one and only Alan Klein. Through his books and his presentations, Klein shows audiences worldwide how to use humor and positive thinking to deal with everything from traffic jams to tragedies. He is an award-winning professional speaker and a recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor, a certified speaking professional designated from the National Speakers Association, and Toastmasters Communication and Leadership Award. Klein is also a best-selling author of 25 books which have sold over 600,000 copies. His books include The Healing Power of Humor, Learning to Laugh When You Feel Like Crying, and You Can't Ruin My Day. Comedian Jerry Lewis has said that Alan Klein is a noble and vital force watching over the human condition. Powerful words. Alan, welcome. Great to be here. Uh, and as I think it was George Burns said, at my age, it's great to be anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> How old are you? You can't be that old. How old are you? I will be 80 <laughs> next year. Come on. No, really. And wow. to celebrate, I always like to, uh, I was going to do this huge party concert. I love Stephen Sondheim music. I was going to do this huge party for my 80th. And then I um, had another idea. So I'm just booking the trip today for next April. I'm going to Europe on a river cruise. Starting in Amsterdam to see the thousands of tulips in bloom. I think that would be amazing. And then going to France and Germany and winding up in Switzerland and Basel, where uh, a friend of mine lives. Wow, that sounds amazing. I can't wait till I turn 80. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Have you ever uh, so... been to Europe before? Or is this your first time? Oh, no, I've been a number of times, and I was on a river cruise two years ago, and it was just so fabulous because, you know, you you go to your room, the room is great, floor-to-ceiling windows, you could, the bed faces the window, you can lie in bed and watch these castles, you know, on the shore, and um, I loved it so much, I thought, well, why don't I do a different one on a different river? So um, that's that's what I'm doing for my birthday. Yeah, that's incredible. And you can meet some interesting people on the cruise as well. And, uh, you know, yeah. Some oh, yeah. And it's it's not like a huge ship. So it's pretty intimate, you know, maybe a hundred and some odd people, not 4,000. <laughs> so not like a, I'm, not I'm like excited about that and celebrating my 80th birthday next year. Wow. So congratulations ahead of time. Thank you. <laughs> and, you know, they have cabins open if you want to come. We could oh, all have fun. Wow, it sounds like an invite. Yeah, I think that's. Sounds- <laughs> <laughs> so long as you pay. <laughs> as long as we pay. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so let's get into this. So you have a pretty interesting bio so far um, that we sort of talked about, and a best-selling author and professional speaker. 
But did you always want to be a speaker and an author, or was this something that came about like later on? You're kidding.、Um, I almost failed speech in college. <laughs> <laughs> I hated getting up in front of a group. In fact, if I recall, I got like a D minus or something in speech.、Uh, it just terrified me to speak in front of a group. And then I had a life experience. You know, we were before we got on the air. We were talking about change, and a big change happened in my life. My wife was from San Francisco. I was from New York City.、Uh, we met when she was visiting a friend in New York City. Always wanted to live in San Francisco, so we moved here. Bought a big, big Victorian house that I've always wanted. And then we found out she became very ill, and she had、um, an illness called primary biliary cirrhosis, which is、uh, cirrhosis of the liver. And she passed away three years after the prognosis, after the diagnosis. So this major thing happened in my life, and、um, I gave up the business I was running with a partner here. And I went back to school to learn about death and dying. I became a hospice volunteer. I became a licensed home health care aide. And I would often notice how people would use humor to help them cope. And then I remembered how my wife used humor. I remember we were in the hospital with a, cat, a copy of Play Girl magazine with the male nude centerfold. <laughs> And she said, "Alan, I really like this photo this month of this nude male. Can you put it on the wall over there, you know, in the hospital?" And I said, "Ellen, it's a hospital. It's a little risque for that."、And、she said,、well, "Maybe you're right. Why don't you get a leaf and cover up, you know, that part?" <laughs> and I did that, and things are fine for the first day, fine for the second day, but but the third day the leaf starts shriveling up, and you get the picture. And we would come home from the hospital. We would look at a leaf or a plant, and we would start to laugh.、Mm -hmm. And I started this little inkling of how the laughter helped us rise above the situation, gave us a reprieve, gave us a perspective on what was happening. So after my wife died, I went back to school. I enrolled in a master's program、uh, to learn about、um, humor, therapeutic humor, and I got a degree in that. And then I wrote my first book, *The Healing Power of Humor*. And then people started to ask me to speak about、um, therapeutic humor. It was the time of Norman Cousins. He was talking about healing himself with humor, and suddenly I was at the right place at the right time with the right message, and.、Uh, I've been doing that for over 25 years now. Wow, that's interesting. It's so interesting, and there's so many. There's so many times I wanted to just stop you,、um, and and go back. So, were you before you met your wife? What did you do prior? Well, I was a scenic designer for CBS Television in New York City.、Um, I always wanted to be a scenic designer. I was taken to plays when I was seven years old, and I'd come home and go. I want to. I want to be the person that makes those pretty stage pictures.、Mm. And I would get a shoebox or a cigar box, and I would do a, a. If we read a book, I would do a little scene from the book and take it to school instead of doing a book report. And so, since grade school, I considered myself, you know, a scenic designer.
And, and I got into Yale Drama School, the most prestigious theater school in the country at that time. It was a three-year master's program in scenic design. I was thrown out after the first year. I was told I had no talent. <laughs> and I believe nobody can can tell me that I can't do something. So I went back to New York City, got into the scenic design union as an apprentice, passed the test, became a full designer. And I was designing national uh, TV shows like people you probably never heard of, Murray Griffin, Jackie Gleason, um, like that. Um, and my fellow classmates were sc- still in school uh, doing college productions. Captain Kangaroo oh. was still on the air um, when I was a kid, so I got to oh, see Oh, good. Yeah. yeah, so you know who that is. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I say Captain Kangaroo, and they don't. Who's that? <laughs> no, but he, when I was doing the show, he celebrated his 25th year on TV. So, and then I left the show. I don't know how long he went on after that. He was on many, many years. That's amazing because being in Yale and they said, hey, this, this man has no future. And then you went on to, to go on to award-winning shows, you know, high-profile American classics, really. And you did, and you worked on those shows. That's incredible. You really, you obviously from a get go, you're able to change your, you know, you had that. And I watched a video of you, and you were talking about intention. You were talking about setting the right intention, and right. You know, you and see you that. You know, plane. at that time, I didn't realize that. All I knew is that I wanted to be a scenic designer. Nobody could stop me, and in my mind, I was a scenic designer since I was doing um, those little shoebox, box things in grade school. You know, I saw myself as a designer, so nobody uh, could tell me I couldn't do that. And That's I amazing. still believe in that. I mean, my first book, Healing Power of Humor, people say, oh, you can't get a book published. You can't get a major publisher. And if it, if it does get published, it'll never make its advance back. You know, there's 40,000 books a year published. Um, they get lost most of the time. They don't sell many copies. You know, over all this negative stuff, and then going, I'm not going to listen to you, you know. And now I had, you said my 25th book published, which interesting enough is called "You Can't Ruin My Day," mm-hmm. because I wanted to show people that if you believe in something, nobody can stop you, and nobody can make you have a bad day you do it you know you're the one that does it that's very Every, yeah. everything that we encounter is inherent in our thoughts in our thinking so that's uh so i've kind of come full circle you know i did that when i when i was told i can't be a scenic designer and all the way now to when i've accomplished that goal and now i've written 25 books to show people uh, they can do whatever they want with some limits. I mean, if I was five foot five foot tall and I wanted to be the world's best basketball player, that might not work. Um, but within limits, yeah, you can do what you want. Yeah, it might not work, but you might still make it. Muggsy Bogues was five foot tall and he made it into the NBA. So I think, you know, you really? probably could have. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, so it's just very interesting how, like, your earlier life on having a desire to be something and then achieving that you use that as you move forward in life as your life changed right 
um, from meeting your wife and having her pass and then using that experience to then get in touch with humor and to teach others about that in a very similar way and getting those books out becoming a public speaker. So before we get, I guess, into those books, can you tell us a little about your life with your wife and how that was before she got diagnosed? Well, it was great. One of the, one of the, I guess, the reasons I got into humor is we would laugh a lot together. I mean, when we got married, we had question, why are we still married when friends would be, you know, divorcing each other or separating? And uh, her answer to me was, I always made her laugh. Mm. I never considered myself a funny person. I consider myself a pretty serious person, but there was something chemistry there. And I would, obviously I was funny to her, maybe to even other people. And with her, I would say, well, Ellen, you always, uh, you give my life adventure. Because I never knew when I came home from work, like if she was a gourmet cook and whether we'd have a great gourmet dinner. She was also very gregarious, gregarious and loved people. So there might be 30 people that she invited for a potluck dinner or something. So I met, there was a big, there was a lot of adventure there. I mean, uh, we went to Italy on our honeymoon. We were just talking about Europe, and I had never been to Europe before. So things like that. She just brought a lot of adventure to the relationship. And I guess I brought a lot of humor to the relationship. So together, you guys were uh, an amazing duo. Um, She increased your life in new ways, and you gave her something to laugh about. That's that's very very beautiful. And I think a lot of times, yeah, we forget in relationships to laugh. We do take it really seriously. And so I think that's the a great other lesson. thing, negative thing, perhaps I'd, I'd like to share with you, although uh, it's kind of uh, <laughs> opening me up a bit here to uh, some negative stuff. But I would always save money. To me, money was to be saved. You don't spend it. You know, I grew up in World War Two. You know, we'd save our money all penny pinching all the time. And my wife was money was to be made, to spend, to help things grow, to uh, donate to charity, to enjoy the money. And so we would always, uh, not always, but often fight about that because I wanted to save it and she wanted to spend it. And so it was a little opening to me about abundance in the world and prosperity and that Yes, you spend the money and then more comes in, you know, and I've seen that over and over and over in my life. So now I'm in a place where I look at the world as being totally abundant. I mean, when you look around, the trees, you know, stop blooming and yeah, in the winter they look barren, just like your bank account might look barren. And then things come along, you work, whatever, and money will flow. And so my next book I'm writing is called A for Abundance. Mm. And it's all about how abundant the world is, not only in money, but in in things to make us laugh or bring us joy or bring us happiness. Um, And of course, we don't see it when we have those those kind of lack, uh, non-prosperous, prosperity uh, consciousness. So... 
I would like to raise some of the reader's consciousness and, and write the book A is for Abundance. That's one thing that I appreciate with what you're saying uh, and your career tells that story is that you've produced so much quality content. And it's what I believe in is, you know, when you have that, you know, you set the right intention and you put the content is there, it's got the quality, then you don't have to focus as much on things like, you know, um, you know, people giving you negative opinions about what your book is going to do or, uh, you know, making enough money at, at once you get the book out there and all that jazz, because you know, I think you can have faith in the material you put out. It's quality, and it's, if it's a great item and it's got that what it needs, people are going to pick it up, read it, listen to it, and what have you. So I th that's something that I'm hearing from what you're saying, and especially with your next one, you know, ab talking about abundance. That's something you know again talks about what we need to kind of come back to in society is, is see the abundance around us see not only in nature but in in your personal lives there's so much to be grateful for and that we all have um, we, we live in a most of us listening to this live in a western society where compared to the underdeveloped world you know tremendous amount of abundance so I, that that's a great uh, topic and you know I'm, I'm looking forward to that one well, what I write about is what I often what has brought has been changed in my life for the positive. So, humor. You know, I was able to find humor, um, and my wife's teaching about humor and laughing together to help me get through loss. So I thought this could help other. It certainly helped me. You know, even if it helps one other person all that struggle of writing was worth it. And so now I'm in a place where I look at the abundance. I mean, when I walk my dog, this is so funny, because I walk my dog and I find money, I wouldn't say every day, but maybe every other day, maybe three times a week. I find money on the street. You know, last year I found a $100 bill on the street. Oh. <laughs> This year I found uh, it was a bundle of money. It was three $20 bills on the What's street. The, what city and street do you live on? I'm just going to go visit that area. I'm going to drive by. <laughs> well, it's funny. Other people tell me they don't find, they never find money. And I have this um, story about my cousin. She was great. She was like my sister, and she'd come and visit. I'm in San Francisco. We'd uh, And she'd always, you know, we'd walk the dog, and I'd find money, and she'd go, Alan, you are always finding money. I never find money. You always find money. So, so one day, we're walking in the park, and... Um, I, I I take out a dollar bill and I kind of throw it ahead of me. She didn't see me do that. And we're walking along and I'm thinking, oh, now she's going to have a chance to find some money, right? She steps right on it, steps over it, and I go, I turn around and I look, a dollar bill, and she goes, Alan, you're always finding money. <laughs> That's really funny. It speaks to sort of the individual and I think what they their perspective as they move forward through life because you're finding this abundance because there's a part of you that already sees abundance in life. And so it's people who say are in that fear that, you know, life isn't abundant and they have to sort of, you know, hold tight to what they have, they're probably don't can't see what's actually right in front of them the whole time. 
I think that's what you're really getting at. It's like opening up your perspective that there's another way. And when you change your perspective, you change the world that has always been in front of you. Right. And you, your show is, uh, what you're interested in is um, dreams of people dying, right? That is true. Yeah. And we, we also like to talk about the journey because in grief, it's just one aspect of someone's life, but it's the journey I think that matters the most. And right. grief is a part of that journey and it can transform our lives, which as you said, right. like... So, so the same thing with money consciousness, it's just when somebody dies, I mean, you could look at that as, oh, this is tragedy. This is awful. This is the worst thing that's ever happened. And certainly when my wife died, that's the way I was thinking. But I also, and the other way you can look at it, and I guess I did, was, um, okay, she died, now what? Um, Can I move on with this? How would she want me to um, see, you know, with my daughter, how would she want me to continue my life and influence my daughter's life? to cry all the time, to be sad all the time, you know, and the answer I would get would be no. And then, um, you know, she'd want me to enjoy life and be happy. So every time I ask that question is, how would my wife want us to continue? It's a, it was, you know, to remember her, which we do, but also to enjoy the life that we have left. And the other thing people could look at is, because near the end it was very difficult for my wife, it was, you know, there was pain, there was all kinds of negative stuff, but maybe death is like a relief then to those people. They're finally out of their pain. So what I'm saying is there are all ways to look at death. And yes, it's sad, and yes, it was yeah, it could be very difficult, which it was for me and my daughter. But at some point, I think we need to move on and ask, what would that person, how would that person want us to live the remainder of my, our life and to get on with our life? You know, because one of the things I believe, as I was looking back and, and when I was a hospice volunteer and home health care aide, looking at people who would not let go of their grief. And what I realized was two lives were lost. The person that died and the person that was, in essence, no longer living a full life. And so I kept asking myself, you know, do I want two tragedies here? You know, because I had a 10-year-old daughter at the time. What kind of example do I want to be for her? And so... um, I I took a cue from my wife and thought, you know, we want to enjoy life to the fullest. So there's all ways of looking at death, just like there's all ways of looking at prosperity and money and attitude and all of that. Yeah, I think it's amazing how you brought brought that up. And you're right. And I see that too. People will hang on to their grief almost as a way of honoring them, but they're destroying their own life. You know, like they there's part of them that, that thinks that they need to grieve to remember them, right? Um, or to showcase how much they miss them rather than mm-hmm. to honor them through laughter, through a change in what they do in their lives and how they honor each moment with people around them. Because I think death is a great lesson for all of us to remember, you know, 
um, how each moment counts with the people around us. Because we don't know. We never know when someone passes. And like with your wife, you had some time, uh, which was, you know, beneficial because you got to laugh and, and have new memories in that moment. Um, but not everyone gets that. And at the same time, there's, I like how you put it, that we, we need to look at it from a new perspective. So with your child, how was it with your child? Did you see, how, does, how did she learn how to grieve? Was it from you? Um, or she, does she still have difficulty with it? How does, how does that work as the, the father? Good question. Um, one of the things, and I don't know where I got this, it was just instinctive in the moment, but my wife was in the hospital the last few weeks. I was staying with her in the hospital, and then doctors said, there's nothing more we can do, and I said, well, can we bring her home? And we brought her home, and I had not been home for a week or two, and so I went to the store to get some food in the house, my mother-in-law was with my wife. My wife was in the bed. And um, suddenly my wife turned to her side, and she actually fell out of the bed and was on the floor, and she died. And I got back from the store, and my mother-in-law was hysterical and crying outside the house, saying, you know, hurry up, hurry up, Ellen died. And it was just the time when my daughter was coming home from school. It was 3 o'clock. And something, and my mother-in-law said, oh, we have to call the funeral home, you know, we got, and I said, no, we're not calling the funeral home. And I told my daughter that her mother died, my wife died, and we were just going to sit on the floor with her. And we did that. I don't know what, why I said that, but I knew it was not right to like whisk the body away. And to to be with the spirit that was, which I believe is leaving the body. And this is all very instinctive. I hadn't learned this. I hadn't read about it. And we just sat there and told my wife how much we loved her. And finally, when we, you know, felt complete, I said to my mother-in-law, you can call the funeral home now. So right from the get-go, I think I... um, somehow instilled in my daughter that it was okay for, you know, people to die and that we, you know, our final words are we love you. Because I just imagine, if I look back, I imagine my daughter coming home from school, telling her her mother had died and her mother not being there, that the funeral parlor had taken her away. That, you know, when I look back, I realized that was the right, really right thing to do is sit there. So to show my, showed my daughter instinctively that, you know, people die and (laughs) it's okay to be with the dead person. And then we, the other thing, the second thing is we would talk about Ellen all the time. And in fact, we um, had this little thing when we didn't know what to do and something came up and we didn't know do this or that. We would say, I would say to her, what would mommy do? What would mommy do in this situation? And so that um, Ellen was part of the conversation all the time. Or this is a food that mommy made and would really like. Or, you know, so it's, I didn't try to hide that. And that the uh, third thing we did was to celebrate in some ways the loss. And, and again, I didn't realize this, but... 
it was a bonding situation and my daughter and myself we went on a trip to Alaska shortly after my wife died and we took the ferry system and we went on seaplane rides and uh, on the glaciers and uh, water uh, rapid you know trip and saw puffins and <laughs> And my daughter still, she's going to be 50 this year. She talks about that trip and seeing the puffins and how great that trip was. So great question. And I never thought of it, how I supported my daughter in dealing with the loss. But those are some of the things we did. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. And it's interesting when you look back and reflect because there's not a training manual, right? Like you just go with your gut. And, and I think allowing the person to not be afraid of death, right? Because they take a lot of cues from you. And because you weren't afraid of death or acknowledging loss and sitting with loss, they weren't afraid of it either. And so it gave them, I think, a little uh, safe space to be what they needed to do and, and say what they needed to say. I'm guessing there were times where she was crying and, you know, you had a comforter. Oh, yeah. And I guess, too, the, the one thing that I heard in the story was you guys bonded probably in a new level now that her mother was gone. Right. So that trip, that trip really cemented that. That was really good. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I mentioned a little while ago that, you know, when I have lessons in my life, I like to share that with others. So I wrote another book, which because when I was grieving, I would, I would look at books that were like big tomes of, you know, 400 pages about grief and how terrible I'm going to feel and I'm going to lose my appetite and I'm going to be depressed and I'm going to want to sleep a lot or I can't sleep. And I read those and I thought, this is not helping. <laughs> this is why, you know, so I wrote a book called Learning to Laugh When You Feel Like Crying. And it's a very simple book. It has five little chapters, um, losing, learning, uh, letting go, uh, living, and laughing. And they're very short little quotes about all of those, and then a little paragraph or two that I wrote from my own life. Mm -hmm. So that anyone who is going through a loss, not only a death, but a divorce or losing their job, can pick it up, open to a page, and there is maybe a thought for the day that they can carry with them, an uplifting thought, not that they're going to lose their appetite and be depressed, but an uplifting thought to help them get through that loss. So again, I took a lesson in my life and shared it with other people. I think that's good. And it gives you that hope because I think, you know, the people who write those books have the right intention to try to normalize the experiences that most people feel. But that's on an average, right? And and sometimes there's people that are outliers like you who try to see the joy in life a little bit more and want to see a different way of grieving. That's possible. And I think, you know, like with that book, what you shared, um, it probably would have helped some people see that it's okay to laugh even though someone's passed away. Because there's, there's mm -hmm. little, because you know, like in our society, it's not something that we say, you know, like, um, and we don't teach and so people are just going with what they see and and maybe even imitating what they see on TV or, or what they read. So I think giving another perspective on what's also possible is, is huge. And so good for you to be able to do that and write that book. Have you ever laughed so hard that you cried? Oh, yes. <laughs> In fact, my daughter and I laugh a lot like that. Um, 
and and interesting scientifically tears and laughter have the same toxins so when you're crying and you're getting these toxins out of your body when you're laughing really gut laughter you know guffaw kind of fall down laughter and tears are coming out those also have toxins where when you're cutting an onion and you're crying those do not have those toxins from your body so both of them are healthy both tears from laughter and tears from um more serious times. And one other thing that I actually really like from what the story that you gave us was that you you're very responsible with your child and you you know you didn't essentially treat her like a kid and try to protect her. A lot of people think they're doing the right thing by keeping children away from these situations or you know, you know, rushing them out into another room and not having children even look at some people might even not even have them look at their the a deceased person or touch a deceased person. I think mm. all that I mean, we're finding that now in the literature that we read and we've had, you know, grief uh, children's experts on that tell us, you know, it's important, you know, share, share these experiences with your children. And, you know, unknowingly, like you, you said, you didn't really know at the time, but you know, unknowingly, you you were doing everything that you needed to do to raise a healthy, responsible child, and and that's that's pretty beautiful. That even then, you kind of had these in, intuitions to do that. And you know, now that we're talking, it may stem back. That intuition may have stemmed back from when I was a child, because my grandfather, who I liked a lot, died. I think I was seven, and I was not allowed to go to the funeral. And looking back, you know, I, I, it was really, it was puzzling because as a child, you know, there he was one day playing with him, you know, being sitting on his lap. And then the next day he's gone. And I didn't know where he's gone. I didn't see the funeral. It's just like life goes on and suddenly grandpa's, you know, poof in the air is gone. He's no longer around. And not many people talking about it on the understanding what death is. So I think it's very important that children, um, you know, because they they don't know at that age what death is, and to give them a little inkling of that, I think is healthy. Yeah, I believe that too. So was that your grandfather was the first loss you ever had? I guess yes. Um, you know, looking back, I guess he was. Yeah, I was about seven. Wow, it's interesting because the times back then are very different because they really they shielded a lot and they, a lot of people didn't talk about death. It sort of happened. Yeah. In the and uh, as they say, I was not allowed. I think they put, you know, I stayed at a neighbor's uh, apartment and, until they got back from the funeral. You know, and then I see everybody crying and everybody's sad. <laughs> and I don't physically remember this, but I could just imagine everyone around me. I'm seven years old. Imagine you're seven years old and and your grandfather died and everyone around you was crying and unhappy and upset and you don't know quite why. So yeah, I think it's so important to um, include um, children. I mean, death is part of life, so include the children with it. And to this day, I mean, um, I'm pretty honest with my daughter, you know, and when she was growing up, I said, Sarah, never lie to me, 
because if you lie to me, I can never trust you again. I said, I may not like what you tell me. I might get very upset, you know, if what you told me I don't like, but, you know, be honest with me. And so I tried to do that with her, and she has certainly done that with me um, uh, her whole life. That's amazing. And I think, you know, it's one thing, you know, it's to be truly honest with someone can be very scary, even though a lot of people want that. I'm guessing she would have told yeah. you some stuff that you weren't uh, too excited about. Um, right, but too to proud keep, about, yes. <laughs> yeah, you have to keep your emotions in check and provide them safe space to not judge them, to say, okay, you know. Um, right. And that's what gives right. people a space to say the truth. A lot of people just don't say the truth because they don't want to be judged. And that's what I'm finding in just my own journey. It's not that people don't want to say the truth. They just don't want to be judged for what they've done. And if you can provide a space like that, which you're trying to say to your daughter, that's amazing. That's, uh, that's a beautiful space uh, to be in. So moving forward, so you have these two books that you're writing. Um, what else do you have left in your life that you want to do that you haven't achieved? Um, have one of my books be a New York Times bestseller. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Why not? Put it out in the world, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Now that I'm getting up in, in years, days, um, I think, what if I die today? And I thought, you know, I've had a pretty good life. I've done what I want. I'm doing work that I love and nurtures other people. Mm -hmm. I have a great family. I have a great husband. That's a whole other hour we could talk about. <laughs> Just, I, I don't know. Mm. You know, um, people are still calling me to come in and, and do their keynote speeches. Um, so I'm doing the work that I love. Um, people love what I do. My life seems so abundant. I, I, it's funny because I don't see my life that way. I mean, I see how abundant it is. But someone the other night at dinner said, Alan, you have everything. <laughs> You have everything. And I thought, yeah, I'm pretty, I don't know if it's luck. I don't know what it is, but I am pretty satisfied with my life. Do you feel the lasting impact that you've made on society? And if I could, if I could have this into a second part question, I feel today's day and age, this message that you give out is even more important than ever. Has that changed throughout the decades? Sorry, two, two different questions. <laughs> yeah, two different questions. So, impact. Okay. I feel if I can influence one person, whether through the book or when I'm doing a speech, I've accomplished my goal. So, it doesn't take a lot for me to be satisfied. Um, and But I know I've influenced many more than that. I mean, I get... This morning's mail. Where is it? It's on my desk. I just opened it up, and this person wrote... Oh, this is amazing that you asked that question, because the, I just right before the interview with you, I opened this letter, and she says, I want you to, know, to you to know that my book, You Can't Ruin My Day, is the cream of the crop. I loved it. I read it over the course of about one month. It was encouraging, affirming, and challenging. I am rereading parts of it uh, on a regular basis. Great work. Brilliant work. And then she goes on to some other stuff. So I get I get letters, emails like that from time to time, and that just so enriches me, makes my day because writing is a lonely business, you know, and it's not a 
sometimes it's difficult, not always easy. I mean, I got one letter. I've written a number of quote, uplifting quotation books, so this wasn't even my quotation, but a woman wrote, true story, have the letter, saying that when she was a teenager, she was molested and raped several times. And she was so embarrassed about it that for over 50 years, she never told anyone about it. And she said she read one of the quotes in my book. It's about taking back your power. And she said, I put it all over my house. I see that quote every day. And she said, it totally has changed my life. Thank you so much. Is that not amazing? That's incredible. And, uh, you know, I, I could feel that. I could feel the work that you put in and knowing that you, you've essentially saved people. You know, people have changed their lives. And, and I hope that does give you, you know, that type of long-term life satisfaction because, you know, that's what it is. You know, saving a life is not a small thing. It's incredible. And through your writing, you've been able to do that. That's yeah, pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. By the way, before we end the show, I should tell, because you do about death and dreaming, about my experience when I first did a humor workshop. Absolutely. I, I've told this to Joshua, so he knows it. Um, might not remember, but I was at a place called Holistic Life University. I was the director of the Life Death Transition Institute. And I was getting into the therapeutic humor. And so I scheduled a three-hour program, presentation, workshop on therapeutic humor. And near, you know, we're going to have a break in the middle. And near the middle of the uh, program, right before the break, I look in the room, way in the corner, way in the back, to the right side, there was a woman who looked exactly like my wife. For some reason I didn't notice her the rest of the beginning of the workshop, but I did right before the break. And I was kind of shocked. I kind of like stopped speaking and started again. The audience didn't know it, but, and I thought, okay, soon as the break comes, I'm going to go over and speak to this woman. And I, Break came, I got up, I started to go over to her, and someone tapped me on the shoulder to ask me a question. I turned around, answered them briefly, turned back around to go to the woman, and the woman was no longer there. And she did not come back after the break. And my only thought was that this was my wife coming back to tell me what I was doing was okay. It was okay to kind of, in a sense, use her to explain my story and about laughter and to continue that lesson to people and that this is what I should be doing for the rest of my life. Wow, that's powerful. It's amazing when we can have those signs to motivate us in a new direction. And you say like it was this, this one of your first talks, so it definitely would have motivated you to continue. And I think that's beautiful. Um, and it's, it showcases too that how much you do you know, remember her uh, as you move forward. And so, yeah. so uh, I, as you say, it's a sign, it was a sign and uh, I believe in signs. I go, you know, <laughs> I don't know what to do. I need a, <laughs> I need a sign. Uh, 
as I said, I'm celebrating my birthday next year with a cruise, and there were various cruises, and there were various prices, and I'm thinking about abundance, so why not take the uh, the higher one and spend more money and get a better room, and you know, all of this, you know how your brain, monkey kind of brain <laughs> goes round and round with all of this, at least mine does. And then I said, you know, I need a sign, and my lucky number is 22. And when I got the price of the higher price cruise, what do you think number do you think it had in it? Twenty two. And I thought, that's the sign. That's the one I'm going to take. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good because choice can be very difficult, especially when there's so much in our culture. So it's good, and it's good to be confident with what you've done in life. And yeah. so, and of as course, we... life is all about choices. So, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, it can be, uh, you know, very uh, anxiety provoking. I was actually talking to Sean, uh, but that's another story um, about that. So anyways, going back to the loss, have you ever had a dream, since we have about 10 minutes left, have you ever had a dream of someone who passed away, either your grandfather or uh, your, your wife? I have them, not so much lately, but I'd say at least up to a year ago, six months ago, I do have dreams of my wife. They're not always joyous dreams. You know, um, so she's not she's not hanging playgirls in the in the hospital <laughs> <laughs> in, in your dream. <laughs> no, because you know, as I said, you know, we had a relationship, and and it was you know we're human, and I would be upset about money. So it's a, a lot of the dreams I've had is about her spending the money and me wanting to save it. <laughs> um, I'm kind of resolving some of that in those dreams, I think. Oh, well, yeah, you can um, see it. It took a lot of, I think, a lot of processing for you to change that. And, you know, to go back and laugh at that now um, is, I think, the way to do it. Because you're right, it took a lot of stress and a lot of moments, joyous moments away from the relationship, you know, and looking yeah, back. exactly. Thinking, Man, like, was it worth it, you know? Yeah. So those know. come up in the dreams once in a while. I haven't had a dream about her in a while. So, and to me, because I think, I don't know, you know more about dreams than I do, but I think we resolve a lot of issues in our dreams. It's like, well, on the choosing this cruise, the other night I had, you know, dreams about which cruise to choose, or, you know, there's a longer one, a shorter one, and, and I had dreams about that, and I think we resolve a lot in our dreams. Is that not true? Yeah, that can be can be true, and and it's a sign too of like how you're how you're coping also in waking life um, for the mm -hmm. most part. And these dreams, like they can be like that, but they also can be more very unique in the sense of the quality of them uh, that can really mm -hmm. help people through their grief process, especially the comforting ones um, that you know um, you wouldn't really think about going to bed. Like there's some stuff that they say that just you know completely moves you and changes you. Have you had any one of those dreams where you just woke up and it was just like you felt so comforted? Probably. I can't give you, give you any specifics. I have had dreams where I'm crying in the dream. Mm. And then I wake up and I have tears on my face. Wow. I've had those. It's interesting. And so have yeah. you dreamt of anyone else who passed away? Or is it, has it just been Ellen? Not uh, my mom. I I dream about her every now and then too. She was very joyous. I mean, she was up there in years, and we moved to to an independent living. And every Saturday night, they would have live music, and she'd be the only one out of maybe a hundred people that would get up with her walker and dance with her walker, and she'd call her walker Fred Astaire. <laughs> <laughs> 
and she would, you know, dancing would be moving side to side, but she was that kind of joyous person. And so I have dreams about her once in a while. My dad was more negative person. I don't have a lot of dreams about him. Yeah. It's interesting. You dream of the people that were more kind to you in waking life, I guess. You had a better relationship with more often. I think that's interesting. More often. The the other dreams I have, I'd say on a regular basis, not regular, but from time to time, is about my speak. Oh, two two areas in my life. My speaking. So it would be something like I've missed the speech, <laughs> <laughs> or um, not the audience is negative, but that um, the audience didn't like what I did. So so that would be one. Now, and the other, and this comes up also on a regular basis, is my working at CBS oh. and being a scenic designer at CBS. That oh. comes on a regular basis. <laughs> wow. And that was so many years ago that that still kind of surprises me. It's still in there. It's still in that mind. You're still thinking about it while you're sleeping. That's wild. Yeah. And it's... um. Generally, they're okay dreams. I mean, I can't remember specifically, but it's about being a designer in CBS and some of the interactions there or the shows I worked on. Um, Is it in black and white, the uh, the imagery? Because sh- oh, the show would have been huh. in black and white, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I wish I would keep track of some of these. Um, <laughs> You'll have to keep, keep so. a journal and then we can have you back on. And... <laughs> what? You have to keep a dream journal, and we have you back on and talk about some of your other dreams. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Yeah, I don't write down my dreams. Um, one thing when I wrote my first book that I thought was interesting, "The Healing Power of Humor," my editor gave me um, a pad so that when I picked up the pen, the light would go on, and I could see what I was writing. Because I got so many ideas from dreams or that dream state, you know, not quite a sleep state. And she wanted me to capture those. Oh, that's cool. I heard a lot of people do that. Yeah. And so last question, uh, as we're wrapping up, have you ever asked your daughter if she's dreamt of your wife or her mom? I have not, but I will now. Cool, yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting. And that's one of the things we're finding is a lot of people keep their dreams to themselves unless they're asked. And so it'd be interesting for you to sort of see if she's ever had any positive ones or any negative ones throughout her journey. Right. Great question. I will do that. All right. So I guess that wasn't the last question. I think I lied. The last question is we always ask is (laughs) what what dream would you want to have tonight if you could? Wow. The dream I'd want is to see a world that is not suffering, to see a world that is happy and joyous. With the a dream world that knows that everything is perfect the way it is, and dream... that any any difficulties will pass. Okay, well, I, what I meant to say was a dream that has deceased in the imagery. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that all of the people that have predeceased me are um, comfortable and not in pain, and. Um, I don't want to say happy, but um, not distressed. Okay, and where would... and are are okay with where they are. And what setting would this be in? Would it be in your house? Would it be while you're speaking? You see them in the audience? Like, where would the setting be? 
I saw it in a very green place. Like a forest? Whether it's a forest mm-hmm. or a field, but it's very green. There's a lot of greenery around. Yeah, that sounds... Which, uh, now that I say small. that, green is a very healing color, so absolutely interesting. I hope you have a, a dream like that, get to experience that. Wanted to thank you for coming on. It was it was a pleasure speaking with you, um, speaking with someone with such a plethora of uh, amazing work, 25 books. Uh, what's the one that's currently out? This one coming out in September called Secrets Kids Know and Adults Ought to Learn. Mm, that sounds good. And then I'm working on, I just started working on A is for Abundance. Excellent. So let's make that a New York uh, bestseller and uh, get Great. that on the top of the list. Is there anything else, uh, anywhere you'd like to share that people can reach you or uh, contact you? Sure. My website, my I, yeah, website uh, is triple W, Alan Klein. They got to spell that right. A-L-L-E-N-K-L-E-I-N.com. They could also put my name in Amazon. They'll see all my books. And put it on YouTube. I have a TED Talk. They could see that on YouTube. Alan Klein. Excellent. Yeah. Please, listeners, check it out. Google uh, Alan, um, Alan Klein and on Amazon as well. And you'll get a chance to experience some amazing advice, amazing lectures. Alan, do you have any audiobooks out on Amazon? A number of my books are in audio. Like, Excellent. You Can't Ruin My Day is audio. You narrate them? Uh, pardon me? you do the narrating? No. Um, okay. They have an actor doing it. Oh, come on. I think your next one you should you know, know. jump in there. Don't ask. <laughs> Working with publishers. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Well, uh, yeah, a number of them are, if they look on Amazon, it'll it'll show uh, audio, audio book or e-book. Uh, it's also in that format. There's also some apps. Some of the books are in apps. Excellent. That's amazing. Yeah. All right. So, Alan, thank you again. Um, So, for our listeners, please check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams Facebook group. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Grief Dreams. And this podcast can be found on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and many other podcasting platforms uh, such as iHeartRadio. If you're interested in being a guest on our podcast please email us your story and what you would like to share at grief dreams podcast at gmail.com so uh from with love and gratitude from us to you the new beginning beginning